Welcome to Now I See, a place where people share their eye-opening moments and how it changed the way they see themselves, their world, and their place in it. We hope you'll be encouraged and inspired by the stories you hear and challenged to see things in a whole new way, too. Sit back and enjoy this show that we've prepared especially with you in mind. I'm your host, Kit McCarty. Today's special guest is Rick Danielson. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm so glad you are. Rick, also known as Prescott Parson, is a former pastor who has served churches in California and Arizona. He earned his Bachelor's of Arts at Grand Canyon College, his MDiv at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, and his Doctor of Ministry with High Distinction at Trinity Theological University. He also served as the Director of Evangelism and Missions with the North American Mission Board of his denomination. During that time, he wrote curriculum, gospel tracts, articles for newspapers and magazines, and his book, Never Forget Eternity, which was re-released in 2020. In 2021, he wrote his first fiction novel, and I hope it won't be his last. The book, You Picked the Wrong Stagecoach, is a collection of short stories, including one written by his wife, Carolyn. Rick and Carolyn have two adult children, Eric and Carly. Like his heroes of the Wild West, Rick enjoys horseback riding, hiking, fishing, and hunting. Rick, I see you as a thinker and a dreamer, a man who enjoys people and his time alone in the wilderness, someone with a strong sense of right and wrong, and a believer in mercy and grace, a guy who sees the big picture and who appreciates the details. How do you see yourself? Oh, I see myself as a guy who was an alcoholic, drug-abusing hippie who gave his life to Christ in 1969, and God was gracious enough to deliver me from my substance abuse. Um, I see myself as a father and a husband. Um, I've been a Christian minister literally all of my adult life. Um, You know, my first pastor... uh, who uh, was one of the guys I dedicated uh, stagecoaches to, uh, Bob McElroy, was an old West Texas cowboy, didn't get saved until he was in his 30s. But I was very blessed that uh, the Jesus movement took place in the late 60s, early 70s, and that's when I gave my life to Christ. And uh, I've literally been a minister all of my adult life. I was ordained at the age of 21, and uh, served actively for 47 years until I retired in 2019. So, Wow. A what a story of radical transformation. Can you tell us briefly how that happened? You, you said part of the Jesus movement. What drew yeah. you to that? Well, I had had several people share with me uh, while I was abusing drugs, frankly. I started at the age of 15. Um, and, uh, I had people share with me, uh, about Christ. Um, I thought I was a Christian because I went to church every Sunday. My family was a church going family. Um, but I had never come to a personal relationship with Christ. And in 1969, I graduated from high school and that fall, there was a youth conference in Anaheim, California, um, And I went to that youth conference and uh, I will be honest and tell you that I thought a girl that I knew was going to be there. That was my motivation. Um, She wasn't, but God was. 
And um, I met a young man who was a college student at that time. I was a freshman in college. And he shared the gospel with me. And for the first time, the light really went on. And I realized that's what I needed. And so I uh, trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. I will be honest and tell you that it took me about uh, almost two years to get rid of the substance abuse. Um, but through a long series of circumstances, I ended up in uh, Los Angeles at a recovery program. That's what we call them now. We, I don't think we used that word then. A recovery program at a place called Renewal House in Los Angeles. And uh, immediately I was delivered from alcoholism and, and drug abuse. Um, our program was very simple. It wasn't a 12-step program. It was uh, Bible study three times a day and do chores. A two-step program. <laughs> it was a two-step program. You lived in the house. It was a residential program. Um, some, some wonderful people had rented a house in the Wilshire District of Los Angeles, old, old mansion. Uh, before I got there, they had refinished the floors, you know, wooden floors all over this place and uh, cleaned it up and so forth. And uh, the bedrooms were upstairs and that was the guy's dorm. There was probably a butler's or a chauffeur's uh, apartment above the garage and that was the girl's dorm. And it was, that was a wonderful, wonderful experience in my life. Um, in, in, uh, my book, Stagecoaches, I, I have a couple in the uh, Patrick Donovan stories by the name of Alan and Eunice Johansson, uh, the directors of our program in Los Angeles were Allison, excuse me, Alan and Eunice Hansen, uh, both, uh, well, I take it back, uh, Alan has gone home to be with the Lord, mm -hmm. and I understand that Eunice is still alive, she's well into her 90s, but um, they had a major, major influence in my life. What a lovely way to honor them. So what in the world made you think you could become a pastor with a past like yours? I didn't think I could become a pastor <laughs> with God's calling. Yeah. You, know, you don't, you know, anybody that thinks they can do it is probably can't. Um, it's God's calling in your life. Uh, when I got clean and sober, I quickly... Uh, felt a calling into ministry. Um, I moved back to Phoenix where I, my family was. And I knew this Baptist pastor who was Bob McElroy. He was an old West Texas cowboy. Uh, he had a sixth grade formal education. He went to college one semester. And God called him to what he, he says, he, God called him to the mission field, which was the West to start churches all over the West. He started churches in New Mexico and Arizona and Colorado and probably Utah. Um, he would move in with his family. He would uh, go out and win people to Christ and build a building and they would have church. And he was my pastor. Wow. Um, but I, I say that to say this, that you know, a, a person may say to you, I, I think God's called me to preach. Other believers will confirm that. And my pastor and my church confirmed that. Um, I was licensed to preach quite early on. 
in my uh, walk with that church. It was Victory Baptist Church in Phoenix, Arizona, which I'm sorry to say doesn't exist anymore. <clears throat> but the church licensed me to preach. And uh, in our denomination, that really is more tenement to a learner's permit. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think that might be a better term for it. But uh, it, it's saying to the individual and it says to churches around, we believe this person may be called and we're, we want to give them opportunity to, ex to explore that. And a uh, year later, maybe a little over, the church uh, under the pastor's leadership ordained me to the gospel ministry. And uh, so, no, I didn't think I could be a pastor. I thought God called me to be a pastor, and I was just dumb enough to believe that that was enough. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of us get into our calling. We yes. just say, um, okay, and then yeah. we go, and it's amazing what doors open and how God leads. Yeah. So um, churches aren't typically associated with the Wild West, but in your mind, <laughs> they're inextricably linked. How does that work for you? Well, you know, I'm... I, I'm going to be honest with everybody and tell, I always tell everybody, I'm not a real cowboy. You know, I've got a hat and boots and, and but I don't have a horse. I've ridden horses many times. Um, I actually got to go on, on a, about a half a day roundup with my good friend, Jack Carlisle. Um, you know, a number of years ago when I was his pastor. Um, but the wild west, you know, I've been in the west 68 years. I'm 70 years old. My family moved to Arizona in a covered wagon out from Iowa in 1953. That's not true. That's a joke. Um, my mom and dad, I was two years old when we moved to Arizona. And my mom and dad came out with a trailer pulled behind a Pontiac automobile. My mom said it broke down every day. Uh, I don't know if it was the trailer or the automobile that broke down, but we came out in 1953. <laughs> And uh, I've been in the West ever since. Um, you know, as a kid, growing up, you know, 19, probably about 57 or so, my dad got us a TV. I saw our first TV when I was six years old. And my heroes were all the cowboys on TV. You know, Roy Rogers and Gene Autry and you name them, you know, all those guys were my heroes. And I love those shows, Rawhide and all that stuff. And the Western movies, um, Gunsmoke. I remember my mom and dad took us to see um, Miss Kitty and Doc were in Phoenix for, for a personal appearance. And I went and saw them, you know, all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> uh, churches today have many different expressions. Um, I know several pastors of cowboy churches and cowboy churches are being very, very successful in reaching people who are not only cowboys, but people who are looking for something not as traditional. And they can go to a cowboy church and they can be um, relaxed. Um, of course, most churches today is come as you are, but those guys come in their boots and their jeans and and they, they have their hats. Uh, a lot of cowboy churches, maybe even most cowboy churches have a roping arena. 
um, and they'll have a roping event uh, associated with the church every every month or so. Um, but I've always been a storyteller. You know, as a, as a preacher, um, there were two things that were important to me. Number one, teaching the Bible. And if, you, if you're not teaching the Bible, what are you doing? You know, there, there's no point. Um, I, I only have one message, and that's the message of the Bible. But number two, as a communicator, I recognize the power of story. You know, and Jesus used stories. Um, it's been pointed out that 75% of the Bible is stories. Um, and so I've always been a storyteller um, for most of my ministry. Those stories were stories I found someplace else. You know, reading good books, uh, biographies of great Christian leaders, you would find great stories. Um, used to be you could find a good story on television that you could uh, communicate. You know, I remember when I was a pastor in Northern California, a little house on the prairie was something that every church family watched. And I, I remember telling a story from little house on the prairie, I had the audience in the palm of my hand with that story because everybody had related to that character. So um, as a writer, there came a point a few years ago where I wanted to start telling my stories. And that's how this book came about, was the desire for me to be able to tell my stories about uh, the Old West, which I've always loved. Um, I, I want to give a shout out to a friend of mine. I don't know if you'll ever hear this, but Jack Cavanaugh, uh, anybody that's familiar with Christian fiction needs to know the name of Jack Cavanaugh. Jack and I were pastors in San Diego uh, together many, many years ago back in the late 80s, early 90s. And Jack became a, a writer uh, and published his first novel. And I don't know how many novels he has published today. It was well over 25 a few years ago. Uh, but because Jack was my friend and wanted to support him, I, I, I hadn't read a novel since high school probably, maybe, maybe college English, okay? So I picked up Jack's novel and I thought, oh, I'll give it a read. And I loved it. His first book was called The Puritans. If you haven't read that book, you need to read it. And it's, a, it's the first one in the series. And I said, this is great. If this is Christian fiction, I want to read more. And I read numerous uh, Christian novels after that. And that's something I've wanted to do. And, and a few years ago, I started writing these stories um, because I was working uh, frankly, two jobs, maybe sometimes three. Um, it took me a while to get that book written. Um, but I started with this character called Prescott Parson. And uh, when I joined the Single Action Shooting Society, you have a, an alias. And many, many people take their alias either from an actual character in the Old West or from characters in Western novels. And so I, I took the name Prescott Parson um, from this character that I was beginning to write about. So 
I'm not sure how that answers your question. No, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope our listeners are also enjoying. Uh, We're going to take a break right now. We'll be back in just a minute with more from our guest today, Rick Danielson. Rick might assert that you picked the wrong stagecoach, but I hope by now you realized you picked the right podcast. If you haven't done so yet, let others see how smart you are for finding us by leaving a great rating and review and sharing this episode with people you think might enjoy it. We had so much fun with Bruce Lovesmith last week. Didn't you love his laugh? I hope you saw his hilarious video clip on our website at nis.media. His mission is to encourage and exhort, and his recollection of his time in Ukraine was so timely. If you missed it, and I know you've been busy, you can visit our website and search through the archives. We've had so many fabulous guests. Next week, we'll hear from Jason Curry, the president of Texas Baptist Home for Children, and you'll hear about his amazing journey in fostering and adoption, and how you can support children and families in crisis. We so enjoy having you sit in on our conversations, so let us hear from you on our socials at Now I See Pod. Now, back to our show. Our guest today, Rick Danielson, has been telling us about his wildlife in the Wild West. I'd like to turn the corner now and talk about where you find inspiration for your stories, how you created the Stagecoach Collection, and any advice you might have for aspiring writers. I certainly can talk about my experience. I'm not, I don't consider myself a great uh, resource for writing. Uh, I've learned a few things the hard way, which is usually how I learn things. Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, um, you ask where the stories come from. Um, In some cases, there are real life people that I uh, will turn into a character. Um, I just finished a story last week for my next book that, and I'll just use this as an example. Um, there was a woman, a real-life character in history, uh, by the name of Pearl Hart. Um, Pearl was either the first or second woman in American history to be sent to prison for stagecoach robbery. Okay, and she she went to the Arizona Territorial Prison in Yuma. Pearl was, um, by her day's standards, an attractive young woman. Um, I'm sorry to say, if you you read about her life, you'll discover that she was probably abused when she was young and she and her sister ran away from home because of all that, turned to a life of prostitution at one point and crime and so forth. Um, Pearl, uh, robbed a stagecoach, got caught, got sent to prison, and was released early because she was pregnant. <laughs> oh, no. At least some people theorize that the 
father was the governor of the territory. He had visited her in prison. It's possible that there was a conjugal visit. So I take that character. Um, and I have a woman who is released from prison, but she's not like Pearl. Uh, she was married. Her husband was killed during their stagecoach robbery. She spent four years in prison. And she has a loving mother and father. So I, I take that real life character. Now in stagecoaches, there's a, a madam uh, in, in two of the stories, I think. Um, and this madam was taken from a real life character. She was a, she was a real person who uh, had uh, brothels in different places. And so I take her and the rest of the story is fictional. You know, her description in the book is the same description as I've read in other accounts. So I take her and then I put her in a fictional setting. So when you ask, where do these stories come from? Some of them are inspired by things I've seen or experienced or whatever, or read, but then fictionalized. Um, I, one of the stories, um, actually a series of stories that I write in, in Stagecoaches is about a woman whose husband was an abusive alcoholic. Well, the, the, the germ of that story was I learned about a place I'd never heard of. I've lived in Arizona for 54 of my 70 years. Never heard of the town of Gillette, Arizona. Well, Gillette was at one time the fastest growing town in Arizona. And it's in my county. I have not found the spot yet. It, they say it takes a four wheel drive to get there. But then it went into decline, great decline. Well, so that was the beginning. Okay, I wanna write a story about Gillette. And I have this woman who has stopped there. There was a stagecoach stop. That was one of the few things that was left in this once booming community. She's working as a waitress at the stagecoach stop where they serve food and drink. Well, what happens to her there? I showed that story to my daughter who's a, who is an English major in college. And she said, you need to tell the prequel and the sequel. And so I began thinking about, okay, how did she end up here? So I wrote the prequel about her having had this abusive alcoholic husband and the sequel. Where did she go from there? You know, after I'd written those first two stories, she hadn't, she hadn't had a man in her life that she could trust since her father died. I wanted her to have a, find a man that she could trust. Uh, and, and so the, the sequel tells about that. Um, these are Westerns. There's a lot of gunplay. Um, I have some working knowledge of firearms and I have working knowledge of firearms from the old West. So all of that is as accurate as I can make it. Um, I have a friend who's an author and he's excellent. He's really a good writer. And, and he's, he never asked my opinion, so I never gave it. The only mistake I read in, in his novel that I read uh, was that he had the writer reloading his Colt 45 
while he's galloping on a horse. I will guarantee you that would be a most difficult thing to do. Um, so, you know, I try not to make those kinds of mistakes. Yeah, he was uh, in the moment. <laughs> yeah, you know, I get it, you know. And, and I don't mean to be critical. He's a good mm -hmm, friend and mm -hmm. he's been very kind to me as, as mm -hmm. a writer. Um, it's just one mistake, okay? Mm -hmm. um, but so I, I try to do research, try to make them as historically accurate as I can. Um, as every novelist probably does, I, I make up, you know, places and so forth. But I have some knowledge of the area that I'm making it up. Um, in stagecoaches, I have a modern uh, sheriff's deputy. I, I moved to the 21st century. Um, and he, he's in an area that I've never really been to. So I had to do a lot of research, but God bless Google and Google Maps, you know, where you can look at things and actually, you know, do that satellite view and say, okay, this road turns this way and, you know, it's rugged that way. And so you can kind of describe some things that maybe you have never been to because of the research we can do nowadays. So what's the most fun for you as a writer, doing the research or doing the imagination or the actual writing? Is that therapeutic for you? What do you enjoy about imagination writing? Imagination and writing, I would say. Um, research is painful. It's, it's something I have to do because it's the right thing to do. I don't like it. That's you know, funny because like, you're so degreed. I figured at some point you really loved digging into the books and digging things yeah, out, but no, not, not really. you. Um, <laughs> You know, many, many preachers have a love-hate relationship with sermon writing. Mm. You know, it's preaching that we love. It's getting up in front of the congregation and sharing the Bible and sharing our message. You know, uh, but it's work to write sermons. Um, That's my favorite part. I love the research. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of looking at you with my head uh, tilted because um, that's my favorite that part. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My wife loves research. She wishes love she could learning. find somebody to pay her to do research. Uh, <laughs> I really like write. I like imagination. Of, you know, my process, one of the things you've asked me in, in prior to today was about my process. My process is usually spending a lot of time thinking about a story. Where would I begin? How do I how do I begin this? Um, where does this where's this kind of going to go? Because really, you don't know where it's going to go until you sit down to write it, and the story kind of flows out of you as you're writing. But I think a lot about what's going to happen in the beginning. How do I start this? Um, as a public speaker, I recognize that we really only have seconds to capture an audience's attention. And so uh, as a public speaker, I've always wanted to begin with something that would get people's attention. And that's how I try to write. Um, if you have another minute, let me just say, I, I, I wrote an article a number of years ago for Portraits Magazine, which is the official publication of the Arizona Southern Baptist Convention. And because of my background uh, in drug abuse and alcoholism, I was asked to write this article about three different churches in Arizona that had different kinds of recovery ministries. One was a residential program, 
one was um, a non-residential program, and then the other one was um, Celebrate Recovery, which is a very specific ministry. And I, I actually had to travel to Phoenix, Tucson, and Lake Havasu City to do all of that. As I sat down to write it, I wrote that article twice and didn't like it. And then I asked myself the question, how would I preach this? And I wrote it that way. And when I wrote it that way, it, it really clicked for me anyway. And I'm happy to say that it was picked up by Baptist Press, which is the national um, pub, you know, publisher or write, you know, news mm -hmm. agency, I guess, for Southern Baptist Convention. And so that was, that's the only article I've ever had that went national in that way. Well, they and say, think, write what you know. And so you well, knew preaching, you knew storytelling. Well, yeah. mm -hmm. My son is a journalist and 10 times the writer that I'll ever be. And he and I were talking over Thanksgiving and we were talking about this very subject. And, and when I said, I, I asked myself the question, how would I preach that? He just went, yes, yes, that's exactly how you do it. He, he is an adjunct uh, instructor at the University of Missouri. And he says, that's what I tell my students. That's what I tell my students. You know, you need to find your voice. And so I guess one of the things I would say to people who want to be writers is find your voice. Don't try to sound like somebody else. Don't try to copy somebody else's style. Find your style. And for me, it seems to be working. I would think so. So in, in some respects, now I see podcasts is very much like what you're doing is finding good stories and making them known. So um, <laughs> when you're writing, do you know where your story is going to go? I mean, you, yep. you talked about starting a definite starting place and um, grabbing the uh, audience's attention right away. The thing with a podcast is I never know where the story is going to go. Sure. And that's really fun for me. But as a writer, I usually have a Pretty good idea. How about you? No, um, I don't necessarily know where that story is going to go. I don't know the twists and turns that my characters are going to take. Um, will there be a gunfight here? Will there be an escape there? Will there be injury? I kind of flows out of you as you're writing. Um, I try to very much uh, end in a way that brings conclusion to that story. But frankly, I always want my story to end in such a way that people want to hear more. Absolutely. Absolutely. It leaves the door open yeah. for sequels or exactly. at the very least for other things that you might uh, write yeah. about or speak about. So yeah. as we close out our show today, is there any advice that you'd give to aspiring uh, writers? So I would say to aspiring writers, two or three things. One, find your own voice. I've, just, I've already mentioned that, so I won't go into that. Two, write. If you want to be a writer, you got to write. Absolutely. Uh, there's an old adage, writers write. If you're not writing, you're not a writer. You know, the old adage, if, if nobody's following, you're not a leader. If you're not writing, you're not a writer. You, just start writing. It's um, so good. It's just a daily journal. So good. Yes, it's a discipline. And then there are okay. days that you sit down, you have writer's block and nothing will come. If you're a writer, you push through it. It's a discipline. Yeah. It's a practice. Yeah. And you, and you um, do it. The third thing I would say to, to, there's really four things I want to say. Third is make sure you have a good editor. Um, I remember reading a lady's 
post on Facebook. She was writing her life story, evidently a very sad story. And she asked the question, should I get an editor? And my response, along with a lot of other people, is yes, you need, you need another set of eyes. And then she rejected that whole idea. Uh, she wasn't going to get an editor. Have you ever heard of her book? No, you haven't. Okay. Um, I'm not being unkind, but it's just... It's the reality. It, it, it's reality. Um, you wrote it. You're going to read it the way you thought you wrote it. Somebody else needs to look at it. Um, so get a good editor. Um, if you have a friend who is an English major, um, you know, something like that, you know, find somebody. Does your family edit your work? I noticed both of your kids went into word careers. Um, the answer is not yet. My wife, um, my wife uh, sees all my stories and responds to me and she doesn't claim to be an editor and she's not but she'll give me some suggestions, some of which I take and some mm -hmm. I don't. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I, I talked to my son recently about the possibility of editing my next book for me. And I don't know if I can afford him, frankly. You know. <laughs> <laughs> he, After all I've done for you. Yeah, come yeah. on, come uh, on, dad, you can do it. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he promised me he'd give me the family discount. There you go, good. <laughs> That's great. And RV, or I'm sorry, Rick, you had one more. Um, there is one more. And yes. that fourth thing is you need to come up with a marketing plan. Don't count on anybody else marketing your book. Okay. If you, if you are one of the fortunate few that gets a traditional uh, publishing contract, fine. Your publisher will do some marketing, I'm, I assume, but you're the one that's going to have to market it if you really want to sell books. Um, some people say you will need to spend as much time marketing as you did writing. And I, I haven't done that, but I'm going to tell you that I have sold all the books that I've sold. I marketed those books. I had the plan. And I'm not bragging. It's, I need, and I need more. Yeah. That's you just know, the way it works. That's just the way it works. Way it works. Mm -hmm. I know I approached a publisher with several of my works too, and they were like, well, when you build a platform, then yeah. that will look at you. And I thought, what? I thought yeah. you were going to do that for me, but that's not I how know. it works anymore. Yeah. So yep, I, I have good to a know. book that's a third or a fourth written. It's all outlined and everything. Um, I think it's a great book. And it's been rejected by the finest publishers in America. Nobody knows Rick Danielson. You know, I'm not Charles Stanley. I'm not Adrian Rogers. I'm not, you know, Max Lucado. I don't have that kind of platform or that kind of name. And um, so I'm having to try to build that. But it's my marketing plan right now. Well, I'd like to help you do that. So why don't you tell our listeners where they can find your books? Well, both of my books are available on Amazon.com. Uh, you can look them up by their title, obviously, Never Forget Eternity or uh, you pick the wrong stagecoach, or you can look them up under my name if it's correctly spelled, R-I-K-D-A-N-I-E-L-S-E-N. You'll find it that way. Very good. And those are available in uh, paperback and digital for digital readers. So, um, And you've got a great voice. You're going to do some audio releases? 
that's a good question. Nobody's nobody's suggested that I do that. <laughs> well, nobody <laughs> reads it like the author, so just thought I'd throw that out there. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We sure enjoy that. If people want to continue this conversation with you, how can they find you? Um, I'm on Facebook, and uh, my my email address is very simply my name, R-I-K dot Danielson, D-A-N-I-E-L-S-E-N, at gmail.com. Uh, it's the good Danish spelling of Danielson, <laughs> S-E-N. Well, it's an unusual way to spell the first name, too. Is that got a Danish? And, and your son, Eric, has an interesting spelling of his name, too. Is that uh, yeah. culturally relevant? Thank you so much for your time today, Rick. We've sure enjoyed uh, hearing your stories, and I hope the listeners will not only enjoy this podcast, but will pick up some of your books and hear some more. Thank you. And thank you. I appreciate the time. I've enjoyed it, too. And listeners, we'll see you again next week. We're so glad you were able to join us for today's compelling story. You can find out more about our guest today by reading our show notes or visiting our website, nis.media. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Special thanks to the team at Headset Radio for their technical expertise and to Becky Salazar for our bumper music. See you next week.